The gospel reading for the morning is from the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel. We are spending some weeks talking about how we describe Jesus. What words do we use? Last year, last week, Jesus is vagabond. In coming weeks, Jesus has body, as lover, as disruptor, as fugitive, as savior. Today, Jesus as sovereign. Listen for God's word. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, <clears throat> If you are the son of, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there kept deriding him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Here's a direct statement unfettered by embellishment or exaggeration, glistening with empathy and compassion. The statement is profoundly poignant because of its context. It's also known to be true simply because of the reputation of the one who spoke it. They are the words of Jesus. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. These are sovereign words spoken with power and authority, the word of someone whose word has the power to direct human lives. And it's spoken from a place of utter weakness. It's been quite a week, frankly, for displays of sovereignty. The Chinese premier came to Washington, D.C. for a state dinner and for a meeting of the leaders of the two world superpowers. The Speaker of the House resigned his power. 20 or so of our fellow citizens are vying to represent the sovereignty of the United States come a year from January. And then there was the Pope in Congress talking about a very different kind of authority. Jesus wielded a very different kind of power. He displayed a very different sovereignty, the likes of which we hadn't seen before and we haven't seen since. One New Testament scholar has written, for a dying man, a convicted and confessed thief, these words uttered by the crucified Christ must have caused sheer, unadulterated ecstasy and unspeakable joy. But how did we get here? With this thief only asking to be remembered, but instead being promised paradise, that sovereign word, by the Savior of the world who is dying right beside him, the text in the Bible here takes us by the hand and gives us the most surprising news. 
Jesus Christ is highest. He is ruler of all, and he has to suffer awfully. This is the beginning of wisdom about our life. This is the destination of our experience of God in this world. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once told a story of a prince who goes riding through his field one day and he spies a, a young peasant girl gathering in the crops. She's beautiful and the prince instantly falls in love for a distance. However, he's a noble prince. He doesn't want to overwhelm her with his power and riches. So he dresses his, in peasant clothes and goes to work right beside her. At this point in the story, Kierkegaard notes that what holds our attention is our curiosity about when the prince will reveal his true identity. We'll know, we know they'll fall in love. In stories like this, they always fall in love. But how and when will this girl discover that she, in fact, is in love with a prince? Without knowing the ending, our imaginations start to run. Will they be sharing a picnic one day and finally he can't stand it anymore and rips off his peasant clothes to reveal the purple robe underneath? Or will it be more dramatic on their wedding day when the prince's true identity becomes known? Or will they be married 50 years and finally in tears and joy he confesses what he gave up to love her? Kierkegaard uses the story as a way of describing how most Christians view Jesus' cross and resurrection. Many Christians picture Jesus as a prince in disguise, the one who cloaks himself in the cross, but knows all along he's got purple underneath. It's just a matter of time before he reveals his true identity in the resurrection. Kierkegaard's point with the story, though, Jesus is not at all like a prince. He has no purple under his flesh. Jesus is a peasant all the way down. Jesus is not pretending to be human. Jesus is human all the way down. But that's hard to accept. It's hard to accept that Jesus' life may not have ended in a way that he wanted it to end. Or that Jesus did not know what was going to happen next. Years ago, a BBC reporter interviewed an American television preacher. The preacher stated that Jesus was the most successful religious leader of all time and one of the most successful leaders of any kind of all time. Just consider it, he said. He began in obscurity amid poverty and despair. And today, his followers outnumber all the other followers in the world. It's astounding. But I thought he ended up on a cross, the interviewer asked. Oh, no, said the preacher. The cross is something Jesus had to endure, as any successful person has the occasional hardship. But he rose from the dead. He overcame the cross. He put it behind him. It was just a bump in the road. Now, even if we wouldn't say it, I hope, like that preacher, that's a pretty attractive way of looking at the cross. Jesus endured the cross. He overcame the cross. It was a bump in the road for him. Much harder to imagine that the cross was not what Jesus was hoping for in the midst of faithful ministry. We often say in church that the cross was God's plan. 
or that it was necessary. The cross was necessary in order for God's wrath to be appeased. God demanded blood for blood. I have never understood those statements. What kind of God would will the death of God's own child? What kind of God would get so vengeful that only blood could satisfy that God? Theologian Dorothy Soleil calls this sadistic theology. According to Soleil, if the God you worship actually wanted Jesus to die, that's like worshiping the executioner. That doesn't sound much like the God that Jesus talked about for his whole ministry. Once there was a pastor who, as soon as she graduated from seminary, got a call to a very small church in a very small town, and she set about the goal, there are about 30 families in the church, to visit every family in the first six months of her time there. As the six months was coming to a close, she'd almost done it. There was just one family left, and she was told, don't bother, they're not coming back. Ignoring those words, the young minister drove out to the couple's house. The wife was home, invited her in, made some coffee. They talked about this, and they talked about that. Then they talked about it. Two years earlier, the wife was at home with a young son. She was vacuuming in a back bedroom. She hadn't checked on him in a while, so she went into the, into the den, didn't find him. So she followed the trail through the den, through the patio doors, across the patio to the swimming pool where she found him. At the funeral, our friends at the church were very kind, she said. They told us it was God's will. The minister put her cup down on the table. Should she touch it? Should she touch it? She touched it. Your friends met well, the pastor said, but they were wrong. God does not will the death of children. The woman's face reddened, her jaw got firm. Then who do you blame? I guess you blame me. No, I don't blame you. I don't blame God. I can't explain it. I only know that God's heart broke first and fastest when this happened. The woman had her arms crossed, her eyes locked. It was clear the conversation was over. Driving back to the church, the pastor was kicking herself. Why, you know, why didn't she just leave that alone? Several days later, the phone rang. It was the wife. We don't know where this is leading, she said to the pastor, but would you come talk to my husband and me? For all this time, we thought God was mad at us. Maybe it's the other way around. Barbara Brown Taylor describes the cross not as something God desired, but as something God suffered. Years ago, the brilliant but very cantankerous Baptist preacher Carlisle Marney was speaking to a group of students at a Christian college. A student stood up and said, Dr. Marney, would you say a word or two about the resurrection of the body? Marney replied, no, I won't talk about that. Uh, I won't discuss the resurrection with people like you. I don't discuss such things with people under 30. Look at you all. In the prime of your life, never have you known honest-to-God failure heartburn, impotency, solid defeat, brick walls, or mortality. You're extremely able and handsome. 
white kids who have never been in all your lives emotionally more than 30 miles from home or 20 minutes into the New Testament or more than a mile and a half from some Baptist or Methodist church or within a thousand miles of any life and death issue that matters like God's kingdom matters. So what can you know of a world that makes sense only if Christ died and is risen? To understand that on the cross, God suffered with Jesus and God suffers with us. To experience that all the way down, we need to bring our own suffering. We need to bring the suffering of the world to this cross. Then we can talk about Jesus' suffering. Then we can wonder about his redemptive words to the thief on the cross. Then we understand how it can be that Jesus, despite all appearances, is the ruler of all and suffers on the cross when it is met with our own suffering and the suffering of the world. That thief did not die alone. Jesus was right beside him, eye to eye, on their respective crosses. We don't suffer alone. God suffers with us. We don't walk through the wilderness alone. God walks right there beside us. This is the beginning of wisdom about our lives. This is the destination of our experience of God in the world. There is a photograph, if you've ever been to the concentration camp at Dachau, there is a photograph in the museum that's alongside that camp of a girl and her mother being taken to the gas chamber. The girl is walking in front of the mother. She doesn't know where she's going. The mother is walking behind. She knows exactly what's awaiting them and can do nothing to prevent it. So in the last act of love left to the mother, she takes her hand and puts it in front of the eyes of her daughter so she cannot see what awaits them. It's an arresting image. It's a moving image. It's an image of love in the midst of helplessness. But the cross, the cross has to be different than that photograph. If the cross is only an arresting image or a moving image, if it does not change the outcome, then I don't want it. If the cross says that God suffers with us, but nothing really changes with the cross, then God is not God. The cross is not only about God who walks with us and God who loves us and a God who suffers with us. The cross is also about a God who changes us. In some way of mystery and grace, our relationship with God has changed when Jesus died on the cross. What was weak has become strong in God. What was sinful has become clean in God. What is broken has become healed in God. What was dead has become alive in God. In the face of monumental contradictions, Jesus has entrusted his life and his death to God. And so this crucified one, we now call the ruler of our life. A few years ago, I was in Los Angeles and had the opportunity 
to visit Homeboy Industries. I talked a couple weeks ago in a sermon about Father Greg Boyle, his amazing ministry helping gang members and former gang members get out of that life and to a better life full of hopefulness and faith. While I was there, I had lunch at the Home Girl Cafe, a breakfast and lunch spot opened and staffed entirely by people who are out of gangs and trying to get out of gangs. Uh, we were led to our table by a hostess who had a huge bandage on her neck, trying to get rid in a slow and painful way of the gang tattoos that had marked her. Uh, later, I heard, overheard her talking with a colleague saying how grateful she was for that job and not, as she says, to still be working the streets. The man who brought our order had gang tattoos every place I could see, uh, but whose smile and direct eye contact seemed newly learned, but steady and authentic. Is everything okay, he said, when he left our food, but he seemed to be asking that question as much about himself as he was about our food. Finally, after lunch, we left by way of the store there that sells t-shirts and hats to support the ministry. The cashier was a young man, again, bearing all the signs of former gang life. He said to me and to everybody else in the little store, if you have any questions, you know, ask me anything. You can ask me about the shirts or the hats or about homeboy. You can ask me about my life. Seriously, ask me anything. I mean, I'm here to tell you, I was gone and I'm here. It occurred to me in that moment that they, like everyone else here, is what we always see. We're a collection of the grateful, the still not quite believing, the crucified, those just hoping to be remembered, the dead who are now alive, the alive who can't quite hope yet that it's really all true. What if the cross were never part of God's plan? But once violence became a reality for Jesus, God took that evil, brutal instrument of execution and brought forth from those wooden beams new life. The power of the cross is that it did not stop God's promises. Nothing ever stops the promises of God. The promise of God that God made to redeem God's creation, the promise of God made to catch us no matter how far or fast we fall. What I believe is this. If you go looking for Jesus, you will never find Jesus in a royal palace. You'll never find Jesus on the sofa watching the game. You will not find Jesus pontificating on different theories of what his death really means. You will find Jesus on a cross. Not just any cross, every cross. Your cross. You will find Jesus wherever someone is dying or dead or just hoping to be remembered. Wherever that hurt, scared, lonely, even dead place in your heart may be, wherever that scarred, fragile, fearful corner of the world exists, that is where we find Jesus. 
Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Sovereign, a very different kind of ruler. Jesus, the one who every day is eye to eye with anyone who suffers. 